Well, good morning. Joy it is to be with you here. I'm so glad you guys made it. My name is James. I'm the teaching pastor here. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bible or open up your Bible app. Cape Bible Chapel app has an e-Bible on it that you could use. However you get there, join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and we're going to knock out a big old section of Scripture today. We're going to look at verses 5 through verse 25 together. But before we dive into that, I kind of want to share with you the thing that God was pressing on my heart this week as we get ready to study this passage, because it's the same thing for next week as well. In both of these accounts, we're going to see God, through the angel Gabriel, make a couple of just absolutely ridiculous promises. I mean, these are just huge, absurd, God-sized promises delivered by an angel. I don't know if people come and ask you questions. Hey, do you believe in angels? Point them here to Luke chapter 1. I believe in the Bible literally, yes, I believe in angels. There they are. But the question rolling through my mind this week has been, what do we do practically when we run into some of these ridiculous promises from God? We're going to see over the next couple weeks how Zechariah and Elizabeth respond, how Mary responds. But how do we respond? Because do we understand when we open God's Word and read it, we're going to deal with these. There's tons of promises that we're going to come face to face with. Do we believe them? Or do we just nod our heads and act like we believe them, but we don't ever stand on those promises in our lives? You don't have to turn there today. We'll have this on the screen. But if you're here and you're a Christ follower, what do you do with a promise like the one Paul shares in Romans 8.28? You familiar with that one? He writes, And we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. How does that one strike you? There have been times in your life when you don't see any possible way that God could actually be working things for good for those who love God. And when we just look at the circumstances in our life, we look at this last week and we remembered 9-11. Or we look at the circumstance of, of something bad happening to us, somebody that we really like, a good person. Or we see some evil person winning the lottery. And, and sometimes we just want to throw up our hands and go, really? <laughs> really, God? That, that's what you're going to do? You're working those things together for good? What are you up to? Was your promise in Romans 8 just a joke? Were you taking a nap, God, when that really wicked thing happened? And what we're really asking is, where are you, God? Have you asked that question in your life? I know that I have. Back when I was a professional skeptic, I asked that question a lot. And what I was really doing was accusing God of checking out. I thought he'd just left. What does God's Word say? Here's what Moses tells us. He's talking about God's people claiming the promised land. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Moses writes, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. He's talking about the nations that inhabited the promised land. The ones the spies went in and said, Man, they make us look like grasshoppers. They're huge. Moses says, Don't be afraid of them. Why? For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. And we all know this part. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do you believe that promise? It's pretty easy to sit here in church and nod my head and go, yeah, yeah, I believe that one. But then what do you do in your life when your marriage is struggling? When your kids are running hard away from the Lord? When you find yourself dealing with the same addictive behavior over and over and over again? What do you do? Do we act like we believe God won't leave us or forsake us? Or do we cry out and scream, where are you, God? 
So I want to encourage us today, even in the midst of our struggles, even in the depths of our trials, I'm going to promise you this. If we trust in the promises of God, if we rest in them, it changes everything. It changes everything. I shared a couple weeks ago that I made a conscious decision many years ago to tell my kids that I love them every day. I'm going to say those words every day because I never heard my dad say those words. But I did hear those words, incredibly important words. I heard them from my mother. I just didn't get to hear them that often. My folks divorced when I was five, and they engaged in some pretty nasty custody battles. And for sure, this was back in the 1970s, and my mother would have gotten custody of me and my brother if she wasn't an alcoholic. And my mom struggled with that for years. But I loved her so much. My mom and I are really wired a lot alike. But we couldn't have the kind of relationship that I wanted to have, that we're supposed to have, because of these battles she had. And so I grew up like that, with a dad who I didn't doubt loved me but never said it, and a mom who said it all the time, but I never saw it (laughs) in her actions. So I went looking for love elsewhere. When I was 20 years old, something incredible happened. My mom got sober. I still to this day don't know what it was. She quit drugs. She quit drinking. I don't know how she did it. I mean, I know she went to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I don't know what precipitated that. I don't know what led to her brokenness, but it didn't matter to me. (laughs) So I was just thrilled. Because I was going to have a mom, you know. I was going to have the kind of relationship with her that I'd always wanted. And so at the time I was in college and she lived up in St. Genevieve, and I'd drive up there on weekends and hang out with her and be her son, and it was wonderful. It was really, really good. It lasted for about six months. (laughs) And then my mom was diagnosed with cancer. She had brain cancer and lung cancer. And she only lived another six months after that. This Friday, September 19th, be the 25th anniversary of my mom's death. I was not a Christ follower at the time. I know that now. I'd gone to church a bunch as a kid, this church, as a matter of fact. I knew a lot about God. I knew all the Bible stories. I didn't know God. But after my mom died, people, well-meaning people, would come to me, and they'd quote verses like Romans 8.28, Deuteronomy 31.6, and it didn't help. Let me just put it that way. Because I was busy getting drunk and screaming at God, where are you? Don't you care, God? Don't you love me? What about all these promises people keep throwing in my face? You'll never leave me. You work all things together for good. And I got mad. I thought it was some kind of mean joke. Let me be so clear on sharing this right now. Hear me on this. God was there. He was working. He was drawing me to himself. He hadn't forsaken me, even though I had forsaken him. Six years later, and it seemed like a long six years I began a relationship with him. It was by grace through faith in Jesus. I became a new creation in Christ. And I changed from the inside out. And I started to read God's word and I started to study. And and I don't remember the exact moment I was saved, but one of the clearest memories I have in my life is the night that I finally understood that God loves me in such a way that he's willing to let me struggle and suffer in order to bring about my good. He's willing to do that to help me grow, to show his purpose for me. And so here I am today. I have this enormous responsibility. 
I'm raising my family. I get the opportunity to stand up here and teach and shepherd his church and thank the Lord I'm different <laughs> than I was 25 years ago. I'm way different when I used to scream at God because his promises just seemed so ridiculous, even mean. See, but now I can see. I was blind then. But now I can see. And it's made me view relationships differently. Part of telling my kids I love them every day is because I've learned from my mom, we're not promised every day. (laughs) We're not promised tomorrow. Time here could be short. This has caused me to love more intentionally. One of the things that my experience with losing my mom really led me to was feeling God's comfort, and that's equipped me to be a counselor. The Apostle Paul shares this in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 5. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With what? Our own good stories? No. With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. See, God has allowed me affliction so that he can use me to counsel others and point to the comfort that the Father of mercies has given me. God does work all things together for good to those who love him. We can stand on that promise, even if it seems absurd. Want another example? My buddy Jared Nykirk, one of my older boys' good friends. They're all bros. This week, Jared had brain surgery to remove a benign brain tumor. And that's scary stuff, right, for Jared, for his parents, Joel and Danette. How do you find out you have a brain tumor when you're a healthy eighth-grade dude? I mean, normally we don't schedule random MRIs, right? No. Earlier this year, Jared broke his face. <laughs> he got a concussion. Youth ministry was playing capture the flag, and he got knocked down, and he broke his fall with his face. It wasn't pretty. My boy Carson and I went to the hospital to visit him, and he was gnarly looking. <laughs> he really was. But when you, when you break your face like that and you have a concussion, they do an X-ray and a CAT scan and MRI, stuff like that. When they did, they found this tumor. See, Jared's accident was no accident. God's sovereign. He works all things together for good. Without breaking his face, there's no way anybody would have been looking for a tumor in Jared. God used the circumstances of Jared wiping out on that concrete and getting a concussion to allow doctors to discover this tumor, which, praise God, was miraculously removed this week. Jared's sitting here in the front row. So here's the application. Do we trust in the promises of God? Even if they seem ridiculous. Really, especially when they seem ridiculous, when we can't rationalize our way to them. Or do we think they're just absurd? I've come to realize this for sure. God works in ways that I'm not smart enough to comprehend. I cling to Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, not as a cop-out, because I can't explain something God's doing, but as a promise that God is in control. Isaiah shares God's heart with us there. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, it's not my job to understand how God works all things together for good. 
just my job to trust him because his promises are true. So that's going to be the application for us over the next couple weeks in our study of Luke. We're going to see in these verses God make a couple of absurd promises from verse 5 to verse 38. First, it's going to be in this story of the birth and the maturation of John the Baptist, and then in the story of the birth and the maturation of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see some similarities. In both stories, we get to meet the parents first. We're going to meet Zecharias and Elizabeth today. Next, we will get to see Mary. In both these accounts, an angel appears. It's actually the same angel both times, the angel Gabriel. And in both these cases, God makes a promise that the recipient would find absolutely ludicrous. And he gives a sign. And then two very different women who had no children become pregnant. God makes this promise every bit as ridiculous on the surface as, hey, I'm going to work all things together for good to those who love me. And we're going to get to see how they respond. And my prayer is it will make us think about how we react and respond to God's promises in our lives. Because we're not just supposed to get together and study God's Word. We're not just supposed to read God's Word. We're supposed to apply God's Word to our lives. So throughout this study, I'm praying we keep those questions in the back of our minds. What do we do if it seems like God has forsaken us? What do we do when it feels like the method that God is using just causes me pain, but really he wants to equip me and bring growth? I remember reading my Bible that night that God made it so clear to me. And it was right after, you know, I'd I'd surrendered my life to the author of my life. And I came across Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And it really rocked me because I didn't understand it. I remember questioning it at first. Here's what Paul shares. For I am confident to promise, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, initially I doubted it because I just didn't get it, right? Now I cling to that verse. What an amazing promise for each one of us as Christ followers. If we feel like we're stuck in a rut, if we feel like there's, there's no growth going on whatsoever, cling to this, rest on this. Truthfully, this verse carried me this week. I've been really struggling. I go back to this verse. God is so good. So how do we respond to God's promises? Today, let's look at verse 5 to verse 25 and see this promise that God makes to Zechariah and Elizabeth that their son, we know him from reading the Bible, as John the Baptist, would be born. And the next week, we're going to revisit this same question. We'll look at the promise that God makes to Mary that her son, Jesus Christ, would be born of a virgin. So let's jump in today and read verses 5 to 7 to start there in chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Every time we read, we want to start asking some observation questions. Let's start with, when are these events happening? The text says these are the days of Herod, the king of Judea. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but Herod was the king of the Jewish area then. He's not Caesar. He's not the highest-ranking government official. But he was king of the Jews from a period from 37 to 4 B.C. So we know about when this takes place as the end of Herod's reign. And Herod was a bad dude. He was from the family line of Esau. 
remember the Old Testament story of Jacob and Esau, they give birth to these two nations, the Israelites and the Edomites. And throughout history, the Edomites are trying to kill the Israelites. And what we see here is the last gasp of that as Herod is trying to kill Jesus. This is the Herod that we see in Matthew chapter 2 who orders the slaughter of all the little boys two and under. Because that's what he's trying to do is kill Jesus. So he's not a good guy in the story. He's evil. But he was one of the most legendary architects of civilization in the history of the world. You go to Jerusalem today and see some of the ruins. These are projects that Herod had built. But he was crazy. He murdered his own wife. He murdered two of his sons. Basically, during his reign, he, he was able to outlaw free speech and assembly. He's a bad guy. It's during his rule that these things happen. Next, we meet John the Baptist's parents. This is Zechariah and Elizabeth. What's their story? Well, here's what we know from the text. It says he's a priest. And, and that word carries a lot of weight. So I'm going to ask you, hey, kind of think more like maybe he's a, a country pastor, you know, a small church out in the country. He's, he's a, kind of a small-town pastor. And it says his wife is Elizabeth. She's from the line of Aaron. So she comes from a family of ministers as well. There's a couple other things we know for certain from the passage. First, it says they were old. They're both advanced in years. I feel advanced in years. How old is that? Well, that phrase, advanced in years, it's only used one other time in Scripture that I can find, and that's in Genesis chapter 18, verse 11. It describes Sarah and Abraham. They were advanced in years to be setting up a nursery. As a matter of fact, when Paul is talking about Abraham in Romans chapter 4 and verse 19, he says Abraham is so old. How old is he? He's so old, he's as good as dead. When Paul calls you as good as dead, that means you're old. So we know they're old. And we know they were barren. And, and that's a, a sad thing, even today. If you know somebody who wants to have children and they can't, that, that's emotionally sad. It's a blessing to have children. So, so emotionally, that would have been tough news for Zechariah and Elizabeth. But now you've got to remember the context and the time this happened. Because back in the day, that was a much, much bigger deal. Because there was no Social Security <laughs> and there were no retirement homes. So when you were advanced in years, that meant your children were supposed to take care of you. And Zechariah and Elizabeth don't have any children. So being barren here is really significant. But we see that Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God. So they didn't let the fact that they were barren have them become bitter towards God. Zechariah didn't divorce Elizabeth and go out and try and find another woman who could give him children. They didn't try the, the Sarah and Abraham and Hagar method where they'd take matters into their own hands and try and help God out. No, they just leaned in on God says they walked blamelessly in a time when being barren would have been viewed by everybody else around them as a curse from God. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth had done something horrible to God, and this was their consequence. They couldn't have children. Zechariah and Elizabeth trusted God. They kept doing ministry. And I think we're going to see in just a second they didn't give up hope. For sure, Zechariah kept praying. Let's look at verses 8 to 10. Now it happened that while Zechariah was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot, that's not a person, that's by chance, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people, all of them, were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. So we said Zechariah is a priest, but there were a lot of priests back in the day. If you read 1 Chronicles David had this division drawn up of 24 groups of priests 
and each one had 750 priests in it. So there were 18,000 priests. And each one of the divisions would be on duty two times a year in Jerusalem for a week at a time. And this job that Luke is describing, being the one to go in the temple and burn the incense, that was like the Super Bowl of priests. That was like the weightiest, scariest, coolest thing imaginable. Because when the incense was being burned, it symbolized the prayers of the entire nation. So when the priests in the temple praying and burning the incense, everybody is there outside praying. So whoever gets to do this job, they become like the focal point of the entire Jewish nation. And it was truly bigger than the Super Bowl because you could only go and do it one time in your life. And so the way they determined which of the 750 priests got to go in was they rolled some dice, you know, or they drew straws. It was a lottery. And I think this is really cool in the middle of this story because this shows God's sovereignty. We know for sure Zechariah had never won this lottery before because he's still eligible. He's still in the game. And this time, randomly, he wins. He's selected to be the guy. Well, Proverbs 16.33 tells us this. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. See, God's sovereign, even over things that seem like chance or accident, you know? God can allow us to break our face so we can go to the doctor when we need to. Honestly, we may think we're the ones throwing the dice, but God's the one who determines how they roll. So Zechariah goes to the Super Bowl of priests. He enters the temple. He burns the incense. He drops to his knees, and he prays, and we can't know for sure what he's praying. But I'm, I'm betting, <laughs> because of what we see next in the story, that his prayer was something like this, something along the lines of, God, please deliver our nation. Please send this messenger that we've heard about who's going to turn our hearts back to you. Herod is so evil. Please, at this time, send the Messiah, the Savior. And then I think he snuck in real quick at the end, and please, 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 somehow, some way, let me and Elizabeth have a baby. Amen. So let's see what happens next. Verses 11 to 17, big chunk of Scripture. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him, and it would you and me too. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll give him the name John. You'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Wow. And he'll drink no wine or liquor, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It's him who will go as a forerunner before him, capital H, in the spirit and power of Elijah. What's he going to do? To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. Why? So as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A lot of stuff going on there, and I think for sure there's another application lesson there. Because I said, honestly, I don't know what Zechariah was praying there, but because of how his prayer was answered, I think it begs this question. What are we praying for in our lives personally? And if it doesn't happen right away, or it doesn't happen on our timetable or the way we want it to, do we keep praying or do we just give up? My grandparents asked Norma Green to be praying for me 
and for my salvation 35 years ago. And she did. And God did. He saved me. But there were many, many years when it looked like that wouldn't happen. But Norma didn't give up. The matriarch of this church, she kept praying. Now, this is horribly convicting for me. Norma has a salvation list. She prays regularly for people on this list to be saved. She was praying for me. I was on the list. My dad is still on the list. Norma prays for my dad's salvation more than I do. That's the convicting part. What are we praying for? Where if we don't get it, we just give up. Because it didn't happen on our timetable. When these things are happening during this reign of Herod the Great, we've got to remember last week, Luke told Theophilus, I'm going to write this down in consecutive order. Well, Zechariah's prayer started 400 years before he was in the temple burning that incense for the nation. We're going to hear about the message of John the Baptist. That's who God is sending as a messenger. He's specifically sent to prepare the way of the Lord. This messenger will come and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the children back to their fathers. How do we know this? Because at this time, God had been silent for a long while, but 400 years earlier, God spoke through the Holy Spirit and he inspired Malachi to write that exact promise down. Look at Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek, he'll suddenly come to his temple and this messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, didn't Gabriel just say that? Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God says, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way. What's he going to do? Malachi 4, 6. This is the last word from the Lord for 400 years. He'll restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. The hearts of the children to their fathers. So that I won't have to come and smite the land with a curse. See, Zechariah knows about this promise. And he trusts God, even though it's been 400 years. He hasn't given up hope. He's still praying. And here's what happens. This is Zechariah's Super Bowl. He says, Amen. He opens his eyes, and there stands the angel Gabriel. And Zechariah was afraid. What would you do? And I think there's a chance I would have had a heart attack. I'm advanced in years. I mean, <laughs> I think it's a good thing that God is sovereign, or Zechariah would have dropped dead right there. And Gabriel says, No, no, don't be afraid. Get this your prayers have been answered. You folks are going to have a boy. You'll name him John, which literally means God is gracious. And this is cool because we see another similarity with our story next week because the angel Gabriel goes and he promises to marry what her son's name is going to be as well. Gabriel goes on to say, you're going to have joy and gladness because, duh, you've been longing for a child and now you're going to have a legacy. But not just you, many will rejoice at his birth because he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. And I don't know, I might just be making this part up, but I see this as a real dig at King Herod because he wanted to be known as Herod the Great. And along comes this little baby <laughs> born to the country preacher and his wife, and now he's the one who's going to be great. That could just be me. The Bible has some great sarcasm written in there, and this could be one of those times where you have this brilliant, evil, wicked Herod, and he's going to have some buildings that are pretty impressive, but here's going to come this little baby and he's going to give his life to humbly serving God, to preparing the way for the Lord. That's great. 
Gabriel goes on to say, John will drink no wine or liquor. We can't spend a ton of time on this today. But honestly, I think this is important for John and also for Zechariah and Elizabeth as they raise their son to teach John the Baptist, hey, you're going to have to give away your freedom in that area. My take on drinking is the biblical one, even though I'm an alcoholic. I hope in everything I do, I choose the biblical option. Call me on it if I don't. I believe it's acceptable for a Christ follower to have a drink. We are free to do so if we follow three really strict conditions. Follow me on this. Number one, don't get drunk. It's exceptionally clear in the Bible. Number two, and this is the tricky one, don't cause anyone to stumble. Don't cause anyone to get drunk. That's the condition, I think, where the Holy Spirit convicts a lot of Christ followers about giving away your freedom in this area, like he does for John the Baptist here. Number three is don't break the law. Within those three conditions, scripturally, it'd be okay for a Christ follower to have a beer at a barbecue, to have a glass of wine with dinner, it would. But the reality is, some Christ followers need to give away our freedom in this area because we will either abuse it or we will cause others to stumble. We won't be able to live under these three conditions. And so we would be better off for God's glory to just give that freedom away. That's why I don't drink, because I know I would abuse that freedom. And God is saying, John the Baptist, he's going to give away that freedom as an example. It's wonderful. Gabriel goes on in verse 15. He says, the baby will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. Again, not a lot of time to dig in, but there's something really important here. And this is really unique, because at the time here, Pentecost hasn't happened yet. After Christ's death and burial, and resurrection. Luke writes about this in Acts chapter 2. That's when we see the New Testament church church age ushered in. And that's when the indwelling Holy Spirit becomes available to all Christ followers. From that point on, it's called the day of Pentecost, every person who professes faith in Christ gets a promise. And it's a ridiculous sounding promise. It really is. It's a promise that the Old Testament saints didn't even get. That they will be able to have the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. As soon as we profess faith in Christ, we get that, complete with all the roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our lives, sealing us for salvation, convicting us of sin, leading and guiding. We get that. Here in Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist gets this gift early. (laughs) Without even professing faith, he gets the Holy Spirit while still in the womb. And here's what I'm going to say. If we need proof that babies in the womb have personhood, that they shouldn't be treated as not yet people, they're not yet human, that's ridiculous. When John the Baptist is conceived, he already has a name, and he gets filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a person. He's a very little person, granted, but he's a wonderful creation of God. Gabriel goes on to say, this baby boy, he's going to be the forerunner who will accomplish the promises that God made 400 years earlier back in Malachi. And there you got to stop and say, okay, what would you do (laughs) if you were in that spot? Because that's a lot to take in, right? That's an absurd promise from God through Gabriel. Jewish people have been waiting 400 years for the Messiah. Zechariah and Elizabeth have been praying for this Messiah, honestly, as long as they can remember. And personally, they've been praying for a baby. And now they get this news, not only are we going to have a baby, but he's going to be the one. He's going to be the messenger sent to prepare the way for the Lord. 
I don't know. I mean, I want to read it and say, Zechariah should have just gone thanks and walked out, but, but I don't think I could have done that. I don't want to be too hard on Zechariah here because I, I think I'd ask the same question. So we'll see how he responds there in verses 18 to 20. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when all these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. And okay, this is funny here, and maybe you didn't catch it, but Zechariah throws Elizabeth under the bus there. He says, I'm old, but my wife, she's really old. (laughs) She's advanced in years. And and that could just be a nod to the fact that, honestly, dads can father children much older than it's safe for women to conceive children. But either way, Zacharias doesn't believe this promise. He asks, how can I be sure? And Gabriel goes all, do you know who I am on him? (laughs) Gabriel says, hey, let's review here. You've been praying for a baby for a long time. You won the lottery today, and you ended up here in the temple to offer your prayers, and you asked for a child, and here I am. I told you you could have one, and that's not quite enough for you? Gabriel says, let me sweeten the deal a little bit. Right before I come to hang out with you, I was hanging out with God. But that's a hard promise, isn't it? Do we trust the promises of God? I don't want to speak for you. I think it would be safe to say almost everybody in here would have asked that same question that Zechariah asked. How can I know for certain? Could you give me some kind of sign? And we do that because we want to inject our stuff into the mix, don't we? I know, God, I know you promised you'd never forsake me, but, man, I've done this thing. I've done this horrible thing, and I've run for you from so long, and I struggle with this sin over and over again, so I'm sure your promise doesn't apply to me. That's what we try and do. Zechariah inserts his stuff here. He says, hey, listen, that sounds great, but we're old. And I mean, I'm no spring chicken, but my wife, she's really old. I can understand the question. And so Gabriel says, hey, you want some proof? Bam, no more questions from you. You'll be unable to speak until this plays out. You'll be mute. And I want to be real clear on this because in the application, I don't want us to get all worked up and think, oh, no, if I doubt the promise, then God's not going to come through. God comes through here. He always comes through. We can trust the promise. Now, the deal is, if we're disobedient, we try to work around God's perfect solution, then we're going to face consequences of our disobedience. But we will not change God's mind. Whatever God has planned for us, listen, He can accomplish it the easy way or the hard way. He can do it with us or without our help. Now, it's better for us. There's joy and peace, and abundant life when we trust, when we join Him where He's working, but He's God. He's in control of all things. So what happens here to Zechariah is both a sign of what God's going to do, and then it's a consequence. Because we see in verse 20 that God indicates that Zechariah didn't really believe. He didn't really trust in the promise. Now God's still going to fulfill the promise. Zechariah didn't sabotage that. But he's going to get to be quiet for about nine months. (laughs) Maybe that was an answer to one of Elizabeth's prayers. I don't know. But but this is a sign, and this is discipline 
from the God who loves us. And He's willing to let us suffer consequences and endure trials so that we can grow. He loves us that much. Okay, let's finish this out. Verses 21 to 25. People are all there. They're waiting for Zacharias. They're wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And then they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them, and he remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home and made a baby. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. So you remember he said everybody's outside the temple and they're praying. They're probably kneeling on this hard marble floor and they realize this has taken a little longer than usual. And maybe, you know, because Zechariah's advanced in years, maybe he died in there and, and then all of a sudden he comes out. But he's mute. And so he plays what must have been the coolest game of charades ever if you think about it. Like he comes out and he's like, You know, and, and he's trying to get him to understand somehow what went on there. And the people pick up on the fact that he'd seen something amazing while he's in the temple. And Zechariah is a stand-up guy. He finishes out his week of service. And then he goes home. And God keeps his promise. And he performs a miracle. And Elizabeth does something pretty unusual here. She basically hides herself away for five months. And, and you don't know what she's doing. But honestly, because of the life she had, I think she's walking around for five months rubbing her belly and thanking God for this miracle. And maybe for her mute husband. I don't know. But for sure, she's praising God. I think she took five minutes or five months just to worship God. Because I'm, I'm really positive Elizabeth knew all the stuff that Zechariah knew. Even though they weren't having any conversations. Either he got really good at charades or most likely through writing it down, if you look at verse 63, Zacharias could write, I'm positive he shared all these things that had happened to him while he was in the temple. What was going to happen through and because of their son. And you can feel confident in that because you see in verse 60, we'll get to it, that Elizabeth knew the boy's name was going to be John. And that would have been really awkward to act out in charades. Think about it. But we do see a picture of the joy that Elizabeth experienced here at the end of this passage. And I, I hope I'm not reading into it I think she kind of indicates from her response that she was probably dealing with the same kind of stuff Zechariah did, the same stuff we do. I think she was in that spot where we don't see God answering our prayer in the time or the way that we hoped. And maybe we start to say, man, what about these promises from God? How do these events, these circumstances work together for my good? Where are you, God? <laughs> Have you forsaken me? I think Elizabeth must have felt some of that. Now, as I said earlier in history, this would have been a time when she would have suffered real verbal abuse from others for a period of, hear me on this, we don't know, 50, 60, 70 years where people would walk by and publicly question, I wonder what Elizabeth has done to make God so angry. I wonder what huge sin is in Elizabeth's life that she can't bear a child. They're whispering over at the marketplace, I bet Zechariah is not as godly as you. Know, I mean, whatever it is, they're, they're saying these things. See, God doesn't love them. He doesn't want them to be fruitful and multiply. And she deals with that for years. I 
think that's what she's getting at when she indicates in verse 25 that God has looked on her with favor and now taken away her disgrace among men. But we know from the passage she didn't get resentful. She didn't get bitter even if she was wondering where God was. Even if she's wondering, why is this taking so long? Why do I have to look at these disapproving looks and rude and snide comments that others would make about her inability to have children? She was righteous. <laughs> and she was blameless, and they prayed. I think they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they worked. Zechariah performed his priestly duties, and together they didn't become bitter towards God, and they didn't try and take matters into their own hand. They remained righteous. They walked blameless. And Zechariah didn't believe at first. We get that. So he experienced some consequences because he wanted more proof. Because an angel standing there tell you may not be enough. I don't know. But, but th- this promise was ridiculous, right? It didn't make sense. They were both advanced in years. They desperately wanted a child. And in his time, God heard their prayers and he had a plan and he made a promise and he can be trusted. So what will we do as we study through the Gospel of Luke together? As we encounter any of the promises in God's Word, how will we respond, especially when the promise seems ridiculous? You know what would be great? Is if people would be able to describe us the way that Luke describes Zacharias and Elizabeth. Man, even in the trial, that person's righteous and blameless. That's the prayer I'm going to be praying for all of us through this study. Let's pray together. Father God, what a joy to come and study your word, to see this story of of an absurd promise. Zacharias and Elizabeth had no business having kids, and you made a promise, and you're trustworthy. God, help us to be righteous and blameless as we encounter your promises. Help us to live in such a way where you get the glory. And we point to you. We can rest in you. We can stand on those promises. I pray for us as a church that we'll be able to do that. God, we love you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to come and worship together. Be with us through this study. Lead us and guide us. We ask all that in your son Jesus' name. Amen.